Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Welcome to our 13th lesson in the Gospel of John. Today we come up on John chapter 18 and 19, which record the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. We have um, probably the most detailed account here in the Gospel of John, as apparently John and his family had an inside track with the high priest and the high, the high priestly family there. Um, John is, um, gives us the account of being in the courtyard itself. And so we get some details here that we don't find in the other Gospels. So join us today as we begin our study in the Gospel of John. Father, thanks so much for this night. And as we come down to the end of the Gospel of John, help us to really see what you'd have to teach us. And and Father, I pray that the entire book, all that we've learned this semester, we would ponder on and meditate on and that it would become part of us, part of our thinking. Thank you for being here with us, for granting us this opportunity of study. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. John 18 is where we're at tonight. Um, Working our way down. And, um, you know, one of the things I hope, and I was thinking a little bit about this earlier today. One of the things I hope that, that's happening to you as, you've, as we've done, gone through the Gospel of John is that you're starting to see the book from a holistic approach. You know, so often we see the Bible in terms of verses and chapters. We don't see it as John's trying to tell us a big picture thing. And there's some big picture items that we need to get out of what he has written. And, of course, you can focus in on the verses and the chapters. But so often we get so busy looking at the at the lowest level that we fail to see the big picture. I hope that it's starting to gel in you what John's really trying to get at. In his book, from a from a forty thousand foot perspective, you know, talking about Christ and about what Christ did, because then that helps you when you understand the book or you understand something from that level. Once you start drilling down into it, it makes more sense. But if you get that top view wrong, then you get fouled up on uh, when you get down deeper into the text. Um, I just got an email from um, a uh, ministry, Zion's Fire. Um, and uh, they're promoting, of course, the pre-wrath rapture of the church. That's a, their big deal. And they just Charles Cooper, who used to used to um, teach at Moody, professor at Moody, um, until he got on the pre-wrath rapture, and then it became his obsession. He finally got booted out of Moody for that, um, and, and went down there and is, is their supposed theologian behind their movement. Um, wrote a new book, and you know he basically is does an exegetical study of showing how Matthew 24 is written to the church. Now, if you know anything about Matthew 24, what's Matthew 24 on? Olivet Discourse, right? It's all about that. Well, if that's written to the church, you're going to have a completely different eschatology than if it's written to Israel. But if you don't understand what Matthew's trying to get at and that the church did not exist, you're going to get all balled up on that stuff. I just mentioned that just... You know, as you're going through a study of the book of the Bible, try to get the big picture down. And then all the little pieces will make sense. 
And John here in John 18, um, that's the little freebie at the beginning there. John 18, we have the arrest of Christ. John 18 and 19 really are the arrest and uh, crucifixion of Christ. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, what garden do we know that to be? Gethsemane. Gethsemane. All right. And Gethsemane means? Olive press. There you go. Yeah, that's that's on that's Bible trivia. Gethsemane means olive press. And what did you have? Well, you had a garden with olives in it, and you would take the olives off the trees and you would press it to make olive oil. All right. So there was an olive press there in the garden. And that's called Gethsemane, um, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So here's the betrayer showing up at the garden. And Judas sort of had an idea that that's where Christ would be. Because he often went there. That that was a, a, a common place for him to go with his disciples to relax, to meditate, to pray, um, to teach them possibly. But uh, he knew that was the place. And, and um, of course, what do we know from the other Gospels about events around us? What are some of the other events that we know? Judas kissed him. Well, Judas kissed him. Before that, what was Christ doing? Praying. Praying. Um, who's he praying with? Himself. Yeah. Why? The disciples fell asleep. They were in a food coma. Turkey. Uh, with his lamb. <laughs> yeah. Um, they had fallen asleep. Their eyes were heavy. They had fallen asleep. And remember how Christ came back to them on at least three occasions and asked them to come pray with him and their eyes were too heavy it says and they, they fell asleep and um, I mean spiritually what can you draw out of that now we don't want to allegorize the scripture right we don't want to interpret it allegorically why did they fall asleep well they were tired okay I don't think they realized the importance and the gravity of the, of the situation. Had no concept. They had no idea what was going on. None. Um, to them, they were just going to go out and pray like they always did and then find a place to sleep and minister the next day. They had no concept that this was really Christ's last night alive. They had no concept that the next day he would be hanging on a cross and by the next evening... He would be in a tomb. They had no concept of that. Um, their basic idea was, hey, this is just another time for him to go to the garden. So, so they were they were completely unaware of the gravity of what was going on. They didn't know. Now, should they have known? I told him on multiple occasions, right? 
I mean, he certainly hinted at it. Now, I don't think he told him, oh, look, guys, you know, this is what's going to happen. You know, tomorrow I'm going to be tried and then I'm going to be crucified tomorrow evening. I mean, I don't think he went into that detail. I think he told them in a manner that after the fact, when they look back, it all made sense. It all made sense. But I also think there's another, you know, and I don't want to, again, you don't want to read too much into this. But Christ was definitely bothered on the way to the garden, right? I mean, he was he was definitely, um, you want to call it preoccupied. The disciples should have probably picked up on that. You know, I mean, if, if someone, you know, if you're with someone that you're very close to and all of a sudden you know, they're not quiet or their demeanor changes or something, what are you apt to try and do? You know, what's going on? What's what's up? You know, is there something bothering you? They start sweating blood. Well, that gives something away, you know. But I think what happened here is that, and this is unfortunate, the disciples were so consumed with their own little worldview, their own little petty things, that they really didn't catch the big picture. They really didn't catch what was going on. Because again, what were they arguing about on the way to dinner? Yeah, now, now look, that was just a few hours before this. And we're not talking about weeks and days and months earlier. I mean, on the way to dinner, on the way to the upper room, they were arguing about who's going to be seated where in the kingdom. They were trying to come up with kingdom seating arrangements. They were preoccupied with their own their own things, their own quest for power. Which really makes you stop and think, and you know, this is one of the things that um, you know, as I've gotten older, my Christian faith, don't pursue position. Don't pursue it. Don't try to seek a place of prominence. Don't always try to be the one sitting with the pastor at the head table. You know, don't don't go after that stuff. Um, as a way of warping your perception of things. And the disciples, their problem was they were just so into themselves and so preoccupied with with their own posturing. They were oblivious to what Christ was going through. Christ was definitely agitated. I mean, he was definitely disturbed. In the garden, he, like I said, he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. I mean, he was, this was agony to him. And why was it agony to him? And that's the thing that we need to understand something here. The crucifixion was not an oops. It was not a, you know, here, here's here's a wonderful teacher, a great guy. And he just uh, sort of got caught up and sort of innocently found himself on a cross and didn't know what was going on. That's not the biblical Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible knew exactly what was going on. <clears throat> he knew exactly where he was headed. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And while I was praying in the garden, what did he pray? As it says in Matthew and Luke. From me. Now why did he pray that? 
You may get the humanities side on What do you think? I mean, none of us want to do a thing or something. Let's understand, yeah, and I think some people think that, you know, and there's validity to that. But quite honestly, I do not think the physical torment even entered Christ's mind as an issue. Yeah. It was a separation from the Father. That's what horrified. Look, being nailed on a cross, I mean, that was bad. But that wasn't the horror of the cross to Christ. That wasn't what caused him to shrink away in terror. That wasn't what caused him to sweat great drops of blood. And and that's not what even caused him to say, Father, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me. It was because for the first time in eternity... Christ would be separated from the Father. And that's a horror that we'll never understand. And a million years from now, when we're all sitting around heaven talking about this, we're still not going to understand it. Because it's something that in our own finite minds, because of our finite capacities, we will never understand. But Christ was terrified. He was terrified of the prospect of having God turn his back on him. But yet he knew that was the plan, right? And one of the things to understand about the crucifixion and about the cross is that Christ was 100% in charge of every detail along the way. Nothing took him by surprise. It was part of God's sovereign plan. And why did Christ come to die? What, what was the purpose of him dying on a cross? As our substitute. He died. Who did Christ die for? That for the whole world. For those who would believe, particular redemption. See, so you're trained now. You understand the truth of... I'm giving her time. We just got to work on Gary over there. Say, so yeah, yeah. Very hard. <laughs> but Christ died to redeem us. The redemption price to pay, the redemption price to buy out of the marketplace to provide satisfaction. Who did Christ satisfy? The Father. The Father. And the ransom price was paid to who? The Father. There's a lot of theories of the atonement. This this goes back when you talk about this, you're talking about the various theories of the atonement. And one concept of the atonement was Christ had to pay a ransom price to Satan. When Adam fell in the garden, that Adam in, in essence sold his soul to the devil, and in order for God to redeem mankind, he had to pay a ransom price to Satan. What does that make Satan? Right. And equal with God, right? Does the Bible teach that Satan is an equal with God? No. Satan is not an equal with God. God is in charge. So the ransom price that Christ paid on the cross was paid to whom? Well, to the Father. 
that he might be just and the justifier of him. Um, this is just a little bit off the top, off the main topic, but I think it's important to just to ponder this. You know, the death of Christ. You know, there's all kinds of words that we use to talk about this uh, propitiation, um, atonement, substitution. Um, there's all kinds of words that go around the death of Christ. But in Romans chapter 3, um, in verse 21 is really the, the key um, idea here that Paul's trying to get at. What Paul has done, he's basically just, just uh, in sort of like a courtroom scene, has proven the guilt of all mankind. Whether you're a pagan who's never heard the gospel at all, whether you're a Gentile who has a vestigial knowledge of God, or whether you're a Jew with God's words himself, he says in Romans 3, there's none righteous, not even one. None of us are righteous. And so the question is, well, how do we become righteous then? I mean, if I'm going to be in heaven, I need to be righteous. So how do I get that? Well, what is the only two possible answers to that question? That's it. It's the only way you can get it. The only way you can be righteous is somehow you've got to be able to do it yourself. Or you have to have somebody else do it for you. That's the only two possibilities. Now, if, you, if you're righteous by yourself, how do you get righteous by yourself? If it were possible, how would that be done? How much of it? All of it. Any mistakes? No, not one. And see, the, 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 really the, the, the intellectual problem that people have is they, play a, they try to play a zero-sum game with this thing. And sort of say, well, you know, if I do a righteous thing, that outweighs a bad thing. Right? What's the problem with that thinking? That you start off from a, um, a level that's beneath God's standards. Mm -hmm. And your pluses and minuses, uh, your minuses don't go deep enough, and your pluses don't go high enough. You can't, you can't get rid of the minuses. You know, I, I use the example of you know charging things on a credit card. You know, you could charge something on a credit card and then pay that something off, or you may not pay that something off. And the problem is all the payments you make to God are never enough to get rid of what? The balance. You can't get rid of the balance. You can't do enough good works to outweigh the bad. Because what are you supposed to do? Right. And if you did, if you lived perfectly and did everything right, it would not give you positive righteousness. It would just give you a zero where you should be. So anything below that will never let you go above the zero mark. You're never going to be able to pay back your sin. And that's what Paul is saying. You've got two ways to be righteous. A righteousness which is by the law, which is impossible. And even if you did keep the whole law, what do you got 
going against you, your original sin, right? You still got the imputed guilt of Adam you got to deal with. So that, I mean, you're stuck there. It says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. The righteousness of God apart from the law. There's a righteousness by the law and righteousness apart from the law. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and upon all who believe, for there is no difference. How is this righteousness obtained? Belief. Now, by the way, that just isn't, that does not mean I just believe Jesus as it is. There's there's a there's a substance to that belief. There's I need to know his person and work, what he did, who he is, why did he do it, what are the implications. There's a, there's a little bit more to it than just believing in Jesus. There's implications of that belief. But the righteousness that I need to stand in front of God is not obtained from my works. It's obtained from by believing and having that righteousness imputed to me. It means to credit to one's account. The righteousness of Christ is credited to my account, which makes me righteous. Not my own righteousness, but his righteousness. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Everybody knows that verse. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified, declared righteous, right? It's a, it's a legal term. We've got a lawyer in here that's good. It's a legal term. When uh, when you commit a crime and you get a good lawyer that can argue your case and you are acquitted and that gavel falls, what happens? You're free. Are you technically innocent? No. But as far as the law is concerned, you're declared righteous. You're free. That's the term here. Eustacari is the, is the Latin term. And what it means is God declares us righteous. Not because of us, but because of Christ. And it says here, through the redemption, the buying back, apolutreo, to buy out of, to pay a ransom price. What was the ransom price Christ paid for you? His life. God says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. What did Christ do? He died. And by placing my faith in him, God credits that death as though I was the one dying on the cross. That's the redemption. Christ bought me back from, as someone said, the slave market of sin. He brought me back. And who did he pay the price to? Father, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. That's another great word. Propitiation. The Greek word is hilasterion. It refers to the mercy seat. In fact, the mercy seat was called the hilasterion. And what happened on the mercy seat? Remember, you have the Ark of the Covenant, and then the lid is the mercy seat with the angels over arching it. What, what was... What was on a mercy seat? What's the significance of that? That was the blood was sprinkled once a year 
to cover the sin of the people on a mercy seat. And what did that blood provide? Satisfaction. That's what the word means, satisfaction. Christ satisfied the righteous judgment of God by his death on the cross. What did God's justice demand? Death. What did Christ's death provide? Satisfaction. It was the payment. If you want to think about it, if you're in a court and you get fined $100 for breaking the law, and you pay that $100, that $100 is the satisfaction. It is the propitiation for your your infraction, you're breaking the law. Hillisterion. H-I-L-A-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. H-I-L-A-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. That's the Greek word. It means to satisfy, to propitiate, to to Avert the wrath of God through the payment of a price. And what was the payment that Christ made? His death, his life. By his blood through faith. That's that's all by his blood. And you understand what it means when it says his blood. It doesn't mean the red fluid in his veins. It means his life. As depicted by the shedding of his blood. When the goat was was uh, sacrificed in the Old Testament, what provided the satisfaction, the, 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 the fluid from the goat or the death of the goat? The death, as depicted by the blood. But it was death, it was death. To demonstrate through the um Pursuing by blood through by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Whose righteousness? No, God's righteousness. To declare God the Father's righteousness. All right. Because of his in his forbearance, that that links it up there. His forbearance, his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now, this is what Paul is saying. David in the Old Testament. How could God forgive David's sins? On what basis? Some would say through the Old Covenant, it was covered through the Levitical process. Mm -hmm. But looking forward to the total fulfillment and atoning death of Christ. Now, did the Old Testament guys understand that? Nope. No idea. No idea. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews, the argument that the writer of Hebrews has is that the blood of bulls and goats only temporarily covered. And how do you know that their sins were not forgiven? Well, because every year what happened? You had to do it again. So there was no removal of sin. But what did God do? God put their sin, if you want to think about it, on account. All right. And some would say, you know, and what Paul's going to, you know, some would look back and say, well, you know, 
God's really unfair. I mean, look what he did. He really came down tough on Pharaoh, and yet here's David who commits some of the same sins, and God forgives him. What 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 gives here? On what basis can God do that? It seems arbitrary that he would he would forgive some and put the hammer down on the others. That doesn't make any sense. Why is it that God is able to forgive their sins? And what Paul is saying is God forbear. And what does it mean to forbear? Put up with. God put up with the fact that their sins were still there until the time that Christ paid the price. Somewhere they're going to say through that at a time he winked. The idea of winking there is not that he, oh, it doesn't matter, ha <laughs> ha, it doesn't matter. The idea there is that the greater the light, the greater the guilt. That's the point that Paul's making there. The greater the light, the greater the guilt. And Paul even makes the argument later on in chapter 5. He says, okay, even before the law came, death was in the, sin was in the world. How do you know that? Well, everybody died. And what Paul is saying there, even if, you, even if God did not impute the individual acts of sin, the very fact that people died indicates that there was a, an original sin principle, i.e. original sin, of which they were guilty of, which would cause death. Physical and eternal death. But what Paul is saying here is that what enabled God in the Old Testament to pass over the sins of the righteous, we'll call them the righteous, is because he, he knew, God knew, that there was coming a sacrifice. And when Christ died on the cross, it demonstrated God's righteousness in forbearing those sins. It vindicated God's forbearance. Make sense? Yes, yes. It vindicated God. God was vindicated. If you said, oh, okay, there was a price paid. It was not just God arbitrarily deciding to forgive this person and not that one on an arbitrary basis. So what did the death of Christ accomplish? It not only accomplished the redemption of us, but accomplished the redemption of everyone. What allows God to forgive my sin? What allows God to forgive my rebellion? Christ paid the price for me. Well, if God doesn't live in time and space, then it really doesn't make a difference whether it happened before or after. From his perspective, it doesn't. From our perspective, it does. Because we are linear beings. You're right. I mean, Christ was ordained, First Peter 3.18, Christ's death was ordained before the foundation of the world. Um, before time began, this whole thing was decreed in the mind of God. So in God's mind, it was a done deal. But from our perspective, as we, since we are creatures of time, there, there, was, there was a possibility that we'd be saying, how is it that God justified David? Oh, David must have done something to earn God's forgiveness. And what Paul is saying, no, David didn't. <laughs> What it was is that God overlooked David's sin because there was coming a time when his sin would be paid for by Christ. And Jesus said he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Is that part of that? Yes. Yes. That's that sacrifice on Calvary, going back, paying for what was done. And all, all the Old Testament is 
is a massive picture book. Mm -hmm. As you turn the pages, you see pictures of the coming Messiah, the, the coming Christ. Until he came, you wouldn't have known what those pictures necessarily meant, except in a in a vague sense. It was a shadow of things to come. The tabernacle was merely a shadow of the heavenly one. Right? That's all it was. And the sacrifices in the old covenant were just pictures. And they were never intended to be permanent. They were never intended to forgive sin. They were intended to cover it temporarily until Christ came and, as Paul says here, paid the price. So not only does in verse 25 Christ's death provide the salvation for the sins that are past, but it also, in verse 28, to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness. Not only the righteousness of those who had died the Old Testament, but even now, even as I'm writing, Paul is saying, it is demonstrating his righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. This is where the, the, the justice of God meets the love of God. So for God to be just, sin had to be punished or he would not be just. So how can God be a justifier and yet just? Well, Christ paid the penalty, which allows God to be just and allows God to forgive those who do what? Believe. And we know from John, who believes? For the elect. I got him to say it. It took me 13 classes and I got him to say it. So. I was just thinking too when you were speaking there, because I had asked this question earlier because it was, it was, it was something in my mind, how the justice character of God and the mercy character of God could ever coexist in the same being without there to be a, a, a quite a dilemma from doing that automatic response against sin and then also having that mercy side of you to want to show mercy. And, you know, you were speaking there how Christ did all of that it, it just it just fell together just perfectly because Christ is 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 the center of all of how that happened. Yeah, Christ is Christ is the central person of 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 eternity. He's the hinge on which everything revolves, the axis on which everything revolves, and and that's why when you follow up the person and work of Christ, you don't go to heaven. That's right. You can follow up a lot of other theological concepts, but you can't mess that up or you don't get to heaven. If you got the wrong Jesus, you're done for. And that's the sadness and the tragedy of Jehovah Witness and Mormon and Way and the, all these other so-called cults because they got the wrong Jesus. And Catholicism. Unfortunately, it has the wrong Jesus. And that's... That's the sad thing. And you've got millions of people in hell now and on their way to hell because they've got the wrong Jesus. You want the Jesus of the Bible. What did the Jesus of the Bible do? The Jesus of the Bible paid your, for your sin. He took your place. And because he took our place, that allows God to forgive us and yet still be just. 
Mm-hmm. And Jesus said he was the way. I mean, that is a reality. There's no other way. The Bible does teach there are two possible ways to heaven. One is you are 100% perfect. And you can't do that. <laughs> because you got two things against you. Number one, you can't you can't keep the law perfectly. But number two, you still got your original sin deal to deal with. So there's no way you can do. You know, it's a theoretical possibility, but not a practical one because you can't do it. And then the other way is through faith in Christ. There, that's the only two ways. And what allows God to be just is Christ paid the penalty. Why did Christ come into the world to pay the penalty? He knew that. Christ was not foggy about that idea. And Christ was not confused about what God wanted him to do in Gethsemane that night. He knew exactly why he came. And his groan, which was a real groan, was not over the pain and horror of the cross. It was over the pain and horror of thinking that he was going to take upon himself my sin. Now think about that. Think about all the sins you've committed all throughout the years. All the icky, ugly, dastardly things you've done. And put that on someone who is 100% pure. And think about how they would feel. How their conscience would feel. Then multiply that by about oh, 40 or 50 billion for all the humans that have lived. And you get an idea of what Christ was facing that night. To take upon himself the guilt of every murder, of every theft, of every robbery of every rape, of every crime committed throughout the centuries from every person. It says in Corinthians, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Now don't let the Kenneth Copelands and Hagans of the world follow you up in thinking that somehow Christ became in essence evil. He could not. In essence, Christ did not become evil any more than, in essence, that scapegoat became evil. But Christ certainly took upon himself the imputed guilt of the world. What, what the Bible really says is God took the, all the guilt of the world, every sin ever committed by every human being that ever existed, and imputed that to Christ on the cross. And for those who believe, God takes the righteousness of Christ and imputes it. To them, there is a divine transaction in salvation. What is that? God takes all my sin and credits it to Christ's account. He takes Christ's righteousness and credits it to me. So as far as God's concerned, I'm as righteous as Christ is. And since Christ's righteousness is infinite, it will never be depleted by any sin imputed in. That's the wonder of salvation. Christ took our place. Allows God to be the just and the justifier. And then verse 27, I'm going to finish up the chapter. Where is boasting? That's a rhetorical question. Where is boasting then? 
if you're not saved by your own works, where is your boasting? What's the answer? Yeah. You ain't got any. Don't and it's you know it's really irritating to God for people to think that somehow they've contributed to their eternal salvation. You haven't. Well, I, I believed. No, you didn't. God gave you the faith to believe. I, I, I'm keeping the I'm I'm keeping the word. Well, maybe you are, but if you are, why are you able to keep it? Because God's given you the ability to do that. It's not you. God does not want eternity filled up with a bunch of people sitting around patting themselves on the back of how good they were to get there. That's really not what heaven's all about. And if you were to take a microphone and a tape recorder and go to heaven and start interviewing the redeemed, you say, "How? why are you here? I don't know. God's grace. Would you to get here? I, I don't know. It's his grace. It's all, and, and, and Paul is saying you got to exclude boasting. There is no if it's by the right by what Christ has done. There's nothing that you can boast of yourself that you did. There is no boasting. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The deeds of the law do not put it this way: the works of the law do not in any way contribute to your salvation. Period. And they have never contributed to anybody's salvation, period. The works of the law are not a contribution to you getting to heaven. And that's really what Paul says in Philippians 3, right? I was circumcised the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew, Hebrew, Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. And I saw Christ and I scrapped everything I put my faith in just to know him. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not only the God of the Gentiles? Well, yeah. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Don't think there are two ways of salvation there. It's a wordplay. How does anybody get to heaven? By faith. Now, again, that faith comes from God, but that's not what Paul's focusing on here. He's focusing on how do I obtain the righteousness necessary to get to heaven? It's by faith in Christ. By what he did for me. So do we make the void the law through the faith? Do we nullify the law through our faith? God forbid we establish. What does it mean? What does it mean to establish the law? We put it in its right place. What was the law intended to do? Show you how bad you were. Give you, yeah. So when God says you're a sinner, say, what do you mean by that? Read this. Oh, I'm doing, I'm, oh man, I'm screwed now. That's really what Paul's saying in a nice way in Romans chapter 9. He says, you know, I was, I was perfectly fine, you know, until the law came along and said, thou shalt not covet. And then guess what? All I did was covet. Because the law exposed me for what I am. Why did God give you the law? To expose us for what we really are. So that we would do what? Come to him and say, help me. Because we can't save ourselves. God God needed, see, in God's mind, if you want to put it, think of another way, in God's mind, works was never a way back to him. But how could he prove that to us? How could he get us to see that? 
he gave us the law. And he gave us a standard that no one could ever live up to. And he's trying to get across the point. The only way back to me is my way. And what is my way? My way is admitting your sin and asking for mercy. That's the way back to me. It's not by doing it on your own. So why did Christ come into the world? He came into the world to die. He died for the sins of the world to satisfy the righteous judgment of God the Father. And the redemption price that Christ paid on the cross was not paid to the devil. That's heresy. It was paid to God the Father. So that God the Father could be just and the justifier. And when Christ is in the garden praying to let the cup pass from him, it was the cup of taking upon himself the sin of the world. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Why did Christ die? He died to please the Father. And after Christ's prayer, verse 2, see, we have to verse 2 in an hour. That's not bad. Judas, who betrayed him, the reason I, reason, just aside, the reason we talk about going to Romans 3 there and bringing that theology in is there's a reason Christ died and there's a theological reason he did it. You know, there's a purpose behind it. You need to understand the purpose to understand what he was doing. Theology has a practical goal in mind, not just head knowledge. And Judas shows up with the rabble from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And we don't know how many there were. There's probably, you know, 20, 30 guys showing up. And they had their weapons with them, of course. And so Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, Went forward and said to him, who are you seeking? Preemptive strike. Jesus knew what they were up to. He wasn't, wasn't taken by surprise. And he asked them, who are you after? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. What happens? Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. What happened when he said, I am? They all got slain in the spirit. This is the only time, by the way, that it happened, in spite of what Benny Hinn would tell you. They fell over backwards. They fell down to the ground. Well, why do you think? He became the Lord of the Lord. And he just, when he comes again, every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess. See, see, you got to understand, part of what God is doing here is God's letting out the rope. Right? He's letting out the rope. So when you hang yourself, there's no question from anybody's mind that you got exactly what you deserve. Here's the king of the universe, the creator, 
They're coming to arrest him. And he says, oh, I, I'm the one you're seeking. They all fall down on the, on the ground. And then evidently they got up. And he asked them again, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. This No. Um, we'll talk about this in our next class in the spring. But there are some people that want to make Christ having two wills. All right. Um, he didn't have two wills. He didn't have a human will and a divine will, right? Because that would make him what? Schizo. Yeah, he's not a schizo. He had one will. Um, and some people say, well, Christ had two natures. He had a human nature and a divine nature. And that's true to an extent if you define nature correctly, right? Christ did not have two components battling within him. He didn't have a divine nature pushing down on the human nature. He didn't have a human nature um, rebelling against the divinity in him. He had a nature that was made up of human and divine qualities. What is nature? It's a, it's a collection of attributes, a, a collection of qualities. I don't know if I'm making any sense. He said he had all power given him. So he had his all power. Definitely. He had all power. And what Christ is getting across to these guys is saying, you know what? You're not in charge. I am. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and I can kind of understand Gary's question because there is a supernatural element that's occurring with these soldiers just backing off and falling to the ground. And that just isn't going to happen when they start to arrest someone. No. And what Christ is demonstrating to them is his power, I think, over them. And, oh, yeah, they're going to arrest him, but if you want to think about it, he's not only showing his power over them, but what, what else does this reveal about them? That they don't really have power. Yeah, it does. Put yourself in their place. What would you be thinking? What am I getting myself into? Yeah, this is not a good thing. I get a, I get about 50 of my boys, and we're going to come out here and arrest this guy. And he says one word, and we all fall down to the ground powerless. You know, I'm thinking I might, I might be in the wrong business. But it shows... It shows the obstinance, all right, of sin. It's like the angels that were, or the guys that were blinded, right, back in the lot. They worried themselves to find the door. They were struck blind, and they still wanted to rape the angels. Now, you know, stop and think about the, the utter, I'm going to call it, irrationality of sin. Here these guys come to arrest Jesus. He says, I am. And by the way, that he is not there, right? So what's he really saying? I am. And where do they, what does that mean? He's God. I'm God. I am. And they all fall down like they're dead guys. And they stir around and get themselves back up on their feet. And he asks them again, who are you seeking? They said Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it's interesting. Jesus was better, easier on them than Elijah was in the Old Testament. Remember what happened then? 
Yeah, the 50 guys come trotting up the light. Hey, we come to arrest you. He said, well, if you come to arrest me, let fire come down from heaven and consume you guys. And they fried them right there. Another 50 guys show up. They get fried too. And then the third 50 come along and they see all the charred bodies around. And they said, look, you know, don't take it out on us. We're just doing with the king. Please come, you know. But um, Christ, is giving, Christ is showing his, this is the thing to understand. Christ was absolutely sovereign over every aspect of his arrest and crucifixion. Nothing happened that he did not allow happen to him. And even the arrest, he was making the point to these guys, look, I'm the one in charge on this thing. He allowed them to take him. They did not come and take Christ by force. He allowed himself to go with them. Because what could he have done? He could have just left them on the ground. He didn't. And Jesus answered and said, I, Now, we know in the other Gospels, Judas betrayed him with a kiss as well, right? So the kiss happened after they fell back. Um, or did it? No. no, I think it happened before. Yeah. Yeah. But Jesus, you know, he shows that I'm not. Now, you, know, you say, well, didn't they know who Jesus was? Well, you know, some of these guys, you know, they may not have known. You know, they were the, you know, the, the soldiers and that. They wouldn't have known probably who he was unless he was pointed out. They didn't have photographs, TV, you know, pictures on boards in those days. Um. Jesus answered, I've told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. What's he doing here? Yeah, you want me? That's fine. And he gets in the repeat of twice. Who are you here to see? Who are you here to get? And he said, Jesus. Okay, let these guys go. You can have me. That saying might be fulfilled. He spoke of those whom you've given me, I have lost none. Now, this is this is interesting. Because what do you see coming together here? You see God's sovereign protection, right? Now, technically, was Christ going to lose all, any of these 11? No, because they're elect, right? But yet you see that election here intersects his physical protection of them. Because he knew that if they were to be taken with him, they wouldn't be able to deal with that. It makes you reminds you of what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He won't give you a temptation which is too, too much to bear. God knows your breaking point. He won't let you go beyond that. And Christ here is protecting the 11. You want me? That's fine. Let these people go. And of course, being the good soldiers that these guys were, they did it. Because they didn't come there to arrest the, the disciples. They came to arrest Christ. That was the one they were after. But of course, then you have old Peter here, you know. He's always getting himself into trouble. He had a little sword and he uh, drew it and whacked off the high priest servant. He cut off his ear. Now, what was he going for? Yeah, he missed. Peter not being a professional soldier. And Malchus here probably being a little bit quick on the reflexes. 
But uh, it's interesting about Peter. You know, whenever Christ was around, he was fearless. When Christ wasn't around, he was a big wuss. You ever notice that? And yet he was going to take on, Peter was going to single-handedly take on this contingent. Why? Well, Jesus is here. We can do it. Yeah, Jesus is here. We can do it. Of course, what happens, Peter, put your sword in your sheath. Now's not the time to fight. Listen, shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Don't interfere with the plan of God. Now, we know from the other Gospels, what else did Jesus do? Now, now you're Malchus. What are you thinking at this time? I really need to get another life here. I'm sent to arrest the guy. I fall down on the ground like I'm dead. No energy. I get myself up. This guy here whacks my ear off, and the one I'm arresting puts it back on. What am I doing still arresting this guy, you know? Yeah, but he's a high priest servant. Though. Yeah. The high, the high priest has another example of God's <clears throat> And what you see here is God in absolute sovereign control of what is going on. Christ is in charge. Christ is in charge of his own arrest. Now that's a new one, right? Because otherwise, I cannot see Peter not being arrested. Right. As well, just from what he just did. Right. Christ puts it back on. He and and you know, remember he says, Those that live by the sword will die by the sword. Peter, put your sword up. By the way, did he have really a big sword? I mean, we think when we think of sword, what do we think of? Some big long, you know, thing to whack things with. This was a little this was a little dagger short sword. This was not some big massive thing. It's a little short sword you could hide in your robe. They still arrest him. And see what what you see here. What what one of the things that God is that God is revealing to them is the the absolute irrationality of sin and how irrational. Look at Pharaoh. The guy was a nut job. I mean, after the first or second plague, I would have said uncle. And yet, what did he do? He just became harder and harder and harder. And isn't that the way sin is? It is irrational. And you see the irrationality of it here. Verse 12, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Of course, Annas was the... And Caiaphas, they were two peas in a pod. He had a little nepotism going on there. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, did he know what he was saying? No. Nope. <laughs> he was sort of like uh, the jackass. Think about the jackass of Balaam. All right, he said something divine, but he really didn't know what he was saying. And uh, by the way, it's in, you know you can do your own research and reading on this, but um, the arrest in, 
and trials of Christ were 100% illegal. They had happened in the United States, his case would have been thrown out of court. You are not allowed to arrest somebody at night. You are not allowed to try them at night. In fact, someone said there were like 33 distinct Jewish laws that were broken to railroad Christ to the cross. I don't know all 33 of them. But suffice it to say, he was not to be questioned alone. He was to have representation. All of those things were broken by these guys. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, um, there's a lot of debate on who the other disciple is. Who do you think it probably is? John. John. And it's traditionally it has been said that it was John. And also, what other hint would you have that it was John? Who's the beloved? What other hint do you have here? Whoever wrote this was where? They were to see it. They were see it. I mean, whoever went in there, whoever wrote this gospel was there seeing these events. So, all right, it's it's most likely John who was the one that was there. And it said that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Where, does the, where are the other 11 guys? Well, Peter's around, right? He's Peter and John followed afar off. Um, one of them ran away naked, remember? Who was that that ran away naked? Yeah, grabbed a coat and he ran away naked. Yeah. Um, the only two disciples, apparently, that were even close to Jesus at this time were Peter and John. And why is it that John went into the courtyard? No. Why did he go in? He knew. The high priest knew him and allowed him in. He was known by the high priest. We don't know how he was known. All right. But he had, you know, access to go in to there. And he went into the courtyard, but Peter stood outside because Peter was not known. He was not allowed in. So what did this disciple do? He went out and got Peter and brought him into the courtyard. Okay. And while they were bringing that one in, while Peter came in, what did the servant girl at the door ask him? And he said, I am not. Now, from the other Gospels, we know what's going on here. And of course, Peter bloviated. That's a good Fox News word. Peter bloviated and said, of all, everybody might deny you, but not me. I wouldn't be there. What was Christ's response to that? Before the cock crows three times, you'll deny me thrice. He said, Peter, Peter, Satan's desire to have you to sift you like wheat. But I pray that your faith fail not. Satan wants you. 
I'm praying for you. Yeah, I, I was thinking that what you asked initially about the disciples who could they have known that this was coming, I think that was a real clear indication that this was it was something really significant was going to happen that night by Christ telling Peter at, in the last at the last supper in the room that he was going to deny him that night before the cock crowed three times tonight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you know when they, when you the problem is when the disciples look back they sort of say, "Duh, we should have known." But they were so caught up in themselves <laughs> and their petty little arguments that they didn't see the big picture. Sad. But here's the first of the denials. And where did that denial happen? Well, it happened on the way into the courtyard of the high priest. Because, And what's the girl doing? All she's asking him is a question, right? Mm -hmm. He's certainly not under arrest. And the other disciple doesn't feel threatened by any stretch. But Peter makes a denial. I don't know him. Now the servants and the officers who had made coal fire of coal stood, out, stood there for it was cold. They warmed themselves and Peter stood with them and warmed themselves. They had a little fire in the courtyard. And those were like the place where you, before you went into the home, you'd go into the courtyard area. It was a little garden area. And they had a little fire going there and the servants were out there warming their hands. It was a little chilly that night. And Peter was warming himself outside. Not with Christ. He was by himself. And the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. The high priest is Caiaphas. And Jesus answered, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. In secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I had said. So that here's the, now, by the way, this is an illegal operation. The, the high priest is not allowed to do this legally. And yet he's trying to probe Christ and ask him about what he's teaching. And what was Christ's response? It's public. There's nothing. I'm not hiding anything. I mean, I've been teaching for three and a half years. People have heard me ask them. I'm not, there's nothing here secret. I'm not trying to hide anything. I've taught openly. I've taught publicly. I've taught out where everybody can see what's happening. And that's interesting because Christ was not one thing in public and another thing in private which is more than you can say for a lot of these TV preachers, right? With Christ, what you saw is what you get. There's no duplicity. And if anything, this was a, a slap against the high priest, which haven't you been listening? What's going on? Don't you know what I believe? It's public knowledge. Everybody knows it. And when he had said these things, one of the officers stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? That was one of the, that was one of the eternally boneheaded things to do, right? 
trying to get in with his master, maybe, or get in with the high priest, or don't you? Now, now, here's a question: Was Christ disrespectful to the high priest here? No. But you could see the seething hatred and anger, not only of the high priest, but of all those around the high priest about this guy. Yeah, don't go talking. They slapped him with the palm of his hand, which was an insult. By the way, that was not allowed under Jewish law, if I remember correctly. You're not allowed to strike a prisoner. Now, if we had a slick lawyer back in those days, Jesus would have gotten off and we would have never had the crucifixion. But Yeah. But the whole problem there is that this is illegal. The, the proceedings are illegal. The questioning is illegal. The, the abuse of the prisoner is illegal. Can't slap him. And Jesus answered him, if I had spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if I, if well, why do you strike me? If I've said something evil or something untrue or something in a wrong spirit, hit me. But why are you hitting me? Applied in that is, I'm not saying anything that is disrespectful in any way. I did, I've said nothing that certainly deserves a slap. Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, look what is, here's one confusion, all right? In 24, you see Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas. In verse 19, the high priest then asked Jesus. No. You need to understand the history. Okay. Annas was a high priest. But not that year. But not that year. Caiaphas was a high priest that year, but he was still a high priest, and he and Caiaphas were two peas in a pod. That being on the same level as us calling all of our ex presidents Mr. President. Yes. That that's the point. Yes. Annas was not the functional high priest, but Annas was certainly the one in charge. I mean, his son-in-law was the high priest that year, but Annas and Caiaphas ran the temple. They were the top of the Sadducee pile. And they're the ones that profited the most out of the temple, and they're also the ones that had the most to lose if Rome came in and took away the temple. All right? So don't let that throw you that, oh, there's a contradiction here. No, if you understand historically what was going on, both Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. And in the view of the people and really in the, almost the view of the scripture, they were, they were pretty much co-high priests because they functioned so closely together. And they took turns doing it. But the first trial served no purpose. He didn't have any formal authority. No. But he was a power. He was one of the power boys. He was he was a powerful person. Annas, Annas was the most powerful, powerful and most influential Jew in Israel at that time. Don't you think if you look at it from the from the Jewish leaders' perspective, they were getting their ducks in a row, getting everything lined up so everybody that's in power was in perfect agreement on what was going to happen. And this is payback time. They're all getting their few minutes of enjoyment out of it. This is payback time. Yeah. You know? Now, I wouldn't want to be Annas and Caiaphas about right now. No. 
But uh, this was them rubbing it in a little bit. So you got the first trial of Christ. He goes before Annas, who was the ex-high priest, a very powerful man, probably the most powerful person in Israel. Then Christ gets taken over to the second most powerful person, Caiaphas, his son-in-law. Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied and said, I am not. Then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, <laughs> cousin showed up. Hey, didn't I see you cut off my cousin's ear? And Peter denied again immediately a rooster crowed. Now, what else do we know from some of the other Gospels? How did Peter deny him? With an oath. A curse. In the movie The Passion, um, one of the most dramatic scenes was when they, when he denied him the third time Jesus Christ was looking at Peter. Is that possible? It's possible yeah, here. Yes. 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 So Peter was he, he was in still close vicinity. He was in the courtyard. So they took Christ out of the house through the courtyard to take him over to Caiaphas's place. And on the way through the courtyard, Christ looks over to Peter just as the cock crows. And Peter remembers it. Then they let Jesus from... By the way, they took Jesus... And it, it doesn't... John does not elaborate on Jesus before Caiaphas. All right? Um, you have to go to the other Gospels for that. Okay? So you've got... A trial before Annas, a trial before Caiaphas, then you have the trial before Pilate. Why do you think John misses the one with Caiaphas? Well, he probably didn't go with him. Yeah, probably wasn't allowed. Yeah. But it's, a, it's in the other Gospels, all right. Then 28, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. And it was early morning. So this is all night. This is an all night affair. Christ before Annas, Christ before Caiaphas, which again was illegal. You're not allowed to do this over the night. And what night was it? Friday? No. Thursday. Thursday night. Christ was arrested on Thursday. Now, here's, here's the thing. Some people are confused because Friday was technically what day? Passover. You say, okay, I don't understand. How could Christ have celebrated the Passover Thursday night, but the Passover was Friday? Well, the other thing you got to do is you got to go back and you got to look at it historically. And you find there were two valid times to celebrate the Passover. There's a Passover for people, I, I can't remember what it is, I think it's people in the land and out of the land. And you could celebrate on Thursday night or Friday. Either was a valid Passover celebration. So now, when did this Passover sacrifice take place? Friday. That took Friday. That was at Friday. In fact, 
at what time did that Passover sacrifice take place? The exact time that Christ did what? And the exact time that the veil was rent. Now that would freak you out, wouldn't it? I even heard that the last word that the priest said when he came out and went like this was, it is finished. Very last word. God's, God's orchestra. Folks, God is in complete charge of every moment of this drama. And though we're looking at it chaotic, like while well, he's dragged here and dragged there and dragged there, it's all choreographed and from eternity past. This was choreographed. Now, did God make Annas and Caiaphas do what they did? No. No, he did not, did he? Did God make Pilate do what he did? Nope. Pilate did that all by himself. But God orchestrated the human desires and rebellion and depravity of each of these men to fulfill his eternal purposes. He didn't make them do it, but he used their already decided actions to affect his eternal purposes. That's part of the providence of God. But here in verse 28, you see him being led away to the praetorium, and they didn't go in because if they went in, what would happen? They'd be defiled and they couldn't partake of the Passover. So talk about straining at a gnat's while in the camp. Hey, let's go kill the creator of the universe, but we can't go into that house because we do, we'll be defiled and we can't eat the Passover. We can do the greater sin of killing the creator of the universe. Talk about the hypocrisy of legalism. Thank you for listening to today's study in the Gospel of John. Part two of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.